Hello, friends. Welcome to another edition of the Egon Carlos Tennis Show. This is episode 12. And joining me today is my wonderful co-host here, Damien. And we have a lot to talk about this Asian swing. So, Damien, how's how's the Asian swing been for you so far? Yeah, I think it's um, probably since the U.S. Open review that we haven't we haven't done one of these. Uh, definitely kind of weird with the timing and also the fact that the women are playing, you know, just regular weeks and men have been playing like Wednesday to Tuesday most of the time. So it's been a bit weird. But right now, I think we should. Uh, yeah, we have a nice window to record to record with Alcaraz just basically not yet starting in Shanghai. Świątek has a, one more day of rest before she has to play her Wimbledon, uh, Wim, Wimbledon Jesus, Beijing quarterfinal. <laughs> I don't know why Wimbledon, Beijing quarterfinal. So uh, this should be a good opportunity for us to to chat about and uh, about them. And there's lots to cover. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I guess we can we can start with Alcaraz because this is his, yeah, this was, like you said, first tournament since the US Open. And his first three rounds here were fairly straightforward. Is there anything in those first three rounds that you you kind of noticed right away? I mean, he 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 beat Casper Ruud in the in the quarters. He was down love three in that first set, came back and won six four six two. It was fairly routine after that. Um, and then you know before that he played Lorenzo Musetti. That that I actually thought was going to be the tougher match between those two, but it didn't end up panning out that way. Two and two for Carlos, uh, and then of course the the first round as well. But uh, anything. Anything of note in those first three matches? Yeah, not really. I mean, I, I definitely wasn't also like just like yeah, I wasn't part of these uh this group that thought that Alcaraz Rude is some sort of a blockbuster. I honestly thought that Alcaraz surely has this in the bag. I, but from what I can remember, I don't think I even watched it all that much. Like just just some bits of it. Um, yeah, crashing Musetti does that like that is a little, I guess, unfortunate for tennis because there was a moment when it seemed like this might be a, a rivalry, actually, right? Yeah. Uh definitely when they played in 2020 in Trieste in the semifinals, that, that felt like a huge match that sort of gives us insight into the future. And when Musetti beat him in Hamburg, of course, that, that also felt like okay, so maybe this is one of the problem matchups for Alcaraz. And then he does that to him at the at Rangaros, where everyone thinks that okay, Musetti is probably gonna trouble him since um he was so good in the first three rounds. And then um Beijing happens as well, which I guess was more expected than the French, but still to do it in 80 minutes. Uh, it was definitely a good display, and and no, I was I was generally very um, happy with what Alcaraz showed in the first few rounds. I mean, he basically didn't really um, get into any trouble at any po- at any stage, so it was as good as you can really expect. And I and I definitely thought that going forward, going into the semifinals, he is positioned very well to you know compete at his best there. Yeah, for sure, um, and he continues to be very good against one handers. Like just that hmm. one loss to uh, Musetti and Hamburg, and I yeah, think and, it, and yeah. Gianmarco Moroni as well. <laughs> so just two losses, right. even if you count all levels, actually. So. True, um, but I guess if we go to the center match, because obviously a lot of build up, a lot of hype, these matches have mostly delivered. Their previous seven meetings before that always delivered right from the challenger in in twenty nineteen. I mean, I actually remember that match quite well because yeah, that was my introduction in some ways to to uh, to Alcaraz before the ATP level, but like. Um, in this in this match, I mean, Alcaraz goes up two love, and he has two break points for three love, and he doesn't take those. And uh, right from then, I feel like the match really flipped a little bit. I mean, he did break again; he he broke again at two all, but then he didn't, you know, 
once he lost his serve, uh, then we were in a bit of a war. And it just felt like, you know, until right from the first set tie break, it was kind of a similar story to what happened against against Medvedev, where, you know, in a way his will was broken at the end in the second set. I can't really say it was a super one-sided second set because, I mean, the first five games, I think he either had game points or break points in all of them. And then I would say when he lost his serve for the second time, that's when it felt like, okay, the match is over pretty much. But I think Sinner did a lot of great things, uh, played one of his best matches. I think he was 15 for 15 at the net, which is, uh, you know, very positive for Sinner. Uh, and then and for Carlos, he really struggled on his second serve. And there were a lot of those same tactical patterns that we've been discussing kind of emerge where, you know, his forehand defense was exploited quite a bit. Uh, and to be fair, Sinner can really do that to anyone just with just how hard he pressures the ball and how well he uses his depth and width and, you know, makes makes Alcaraz really defend uh, on that forehand side. And it feels like a lot of the times Alcaraz is just really just having to guess and play counter-punching tennis. And that's not really the style of tennis that he prefers. He loves to be the one in control dictating play, right? So when you get him rushed right on, right on the basically the first three shots of the rally, that just makes it a much more narrow type of match where I feel like Sinner can... Center has a lot of advantages, and if you're just looking at, you know, serve return, and then also, like, because there's no safe place to go because his backhand is just as damaging as his forehand, and so it just, it feels like, it feels like it's a really troubling matchup right, right now for Alcaraz. But at the same time, I, I guess I want to hear your thoughts on it, and then I want to want to hear, you know, what can Alcaraz really do to kind of turn this one around again? Because it's it, this is a head-to-head that I anticipate will keep going back and forth for some point, you know. There was a point in time where I thought this year that, okay, hmm, maybe Alcaraz might start to pull away a little bit in this head-to-head as well, just because it had been so good up until Wimbledon until that point. But, uh, you know, it definitely doesn't seem like that right now. It, it feels like Sinner is really matching him and Alcaraz has kind of met his equal when they play each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he definitely has uh, four all for free Sinner, if you want to count just two level matches, which is also pretty insane that he's actually leading the head-to-head against Alcaraz. And um, yeah, we we've had some matches this year where um, where players would yeah just just completely start you know rushing Alcaraz and maybe just um, playing a bit of a hail mary style. For Sinner, it doesn't really feel like it because he uh, well that's how he usually plays. You know, yeah. just hits with so much pace despite having this lanky type of physical build, which was always quite amazing and definitely has made a ton of progress this year i don't think he actually served all that well in the semi he definitely did in the final though uh in the semi as you said he was pretty good at the net um the um i i think it wasn't necessarily that he was hitting some really tough volleys but just sort of picked his moments well uh he he definitely looked adequate at the net i I don't think he quite did in the final but still uh you know the, the fact that he was able to keep going there and sort of expose the, the weaknesses of both his opponents, actually, both Medvedev and Alcaraz. And yeah, I'm I'm, I'm sometimes shocked by how uh, basically anyone else who Alcaraz plays on the tour either cannot get him, you know, on the defense as, as well as Sinner can, or uh, just basically, um, well, Alcaraz is so fast, right? So sometimes when he's, I don't know, when he's defending against someone like Tsitsipas, Rublev, you know, guys like that, you still feel like he can be in control of the point, even though he's on the defense, he can easily come back to it. Against Sinner, it doesn't feel like it. And you're very right that, you know, on, on the forehand side, especially, he just cannot absorb that base this well. And yeah, um, yeah some, sometimes it just really, and, and that definitely during that, that match against Sinner right now in the semis in Beijing, 
uh, I was definitely watching it and be and was sort of marveled by the fact that um, yeah, Alcaraz is so fast and yet it doesn't really give him anything. The, the fact that Sinner is playing, you know, so fast of the of the uh, of the bounce as well, and yeah, just just has this insane acceleration is really tough for him to deal with. And this is probably you know his worst matchup on the tour right now. I mean, Djokovic yeah. of course is a better player than Sinner, and for that reason, he is maybe also tougher for Alcaraz, but, you know, it, it could be argued that Sinner is actually his worst matchup right now. I also uh, definitely agree with what, um, I think it was maybe Matt Willis who said it on Twitter, that sometimes when we say that, you know, things like, I don't know, Sinner is the kryptonite of Alcaraz or something, that's a bit of an yeah. underestimation of Sinner's talent for sure, because it's not like we are talking about Alcaraz, I don't know, let's find a comparison. It's not like we're talking about Veseli leading the head-to-head over Djokovic or I don't know, or uh, Borna Cioric winning a few times against Rafa Nadal, you know, and the likes. We we are not talking about a discrepancy sort of of quality uh, of that sort. We are talking of two of the three most talented players of their generation, I would say, the third being Holger Rune. And um, yeah, it's not super weird that they're tied in the head-to-head, but definitely, uh, you know, with Alcaraz's achievements, we sort of expect that uh, he should be leading these head-to-heads against Rune and Sinner. He he is leading against Rune. He's not leading against Sinner. And um, yeah, definitely, definitely not a great match for Alcaraz right now. And uh, as you said, I did think that at some point he was going to start extending his lead. It has not happened this year. And if you think about it, you know, it's it's for all now, but like even the US Open 2022, he saved the match point there. And it was yeah. such a such a pivotal match as well for Alcaraz's career. I mean, if 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 that goes differently, maybe we're looking at something completely um else, like in terms of even this season and like the general landscape would have been so different. Alcaraz doesn't have a have a, a Grand Slam title entering 2023. Someone out of Ruth Kachanov Sinner Tiafo have it. So it, there was a high, there was a big chance for Sinner to win the last, well, three out of the last four against Alcaraz, which would have been insane. But well, actually, then he also would have had four out of the last five, right, with the Umak final. So um, yeah, the, the this is this is for sure going to be a bit of an issue right now for Alcaraz. It does seem like the worst matchup he has on the tour, but that's also because he is facing a ridiculously talented player. In terms of what he could do, I honestly think that there might be a point where Alcaraz just starts um handling that pace a bit better and um i don't know if he if he needs like more matches against players like that which isn't going to be easy because really to match what sinner has uh at the moment in terms of forehand offense especially forehand but even backhand as he said um that's especially in the final i think today against medvedev his cross court backhand was just insane too and um to match something like that it, it's not easy so i don't know if alcaraz needs more opportunities against someone like that or maybe he can do it somehow in practice but i feel like with his athleticism with his speed there's definitely potential for him to uh, handle playing being on the back foot against someone like that a bit better yeah i like you also think uh, like he doesn't need to do something completely out of the blue like it's not you know it's not like he's getting absolutely crushed like it might look like that if you just look at all the breadsticks but it feels like in most of these matches, he's just not converting his break points. Uh, I think that was the case yesterday too. He had like a low 40. He had he had chances. Sometimes the break point stat can be a little bit misleading. You know, like if you say someone is two for nine or something, but then, you know, if all their six break points come in one game and they actually end up breaking, then it's not that relevant anymore. But yeah. 
I would say in this case, Sinner was more opportune and he was actually the more mentally solid player when it came to, like he was more cool, calm and collected under pressure. Whereas I felt like, you know, Alcaraz was feeling that stress of not taking it, not taking it, not taking it. And sometimes, uh, you know, uh, there there were times where he has second serve returns and he just crushes them. And I like the aggressive intent on a lot of second serve returns. And to be fair, if he makes them, I'd probably be praising him. Like that's just the reality of it. But I think, uh, and and if he, you know, if he's able to come out on top in the rally, but I think there's just some sometimes where he might be better off just getting the return back in deep, and then waiting for the right right ball to to crush on because it feels like even in defense he's trying to crush balls, uh, you know, while he's defending and. What that's doing is it's actually taking a lot of time away from his his uh, court positioning, basically, because now he's having to cover a whole lot of ground to get back to the middle and defend a lot. And I think he'd be better off just, you know, looping it in or like putting a little bit more height and just a little bit more like safety over the net. But it's a little, it's a little harder to do because generally most of the time on his running forehand, he goes cross court, which is something that really like Djokovic and uh, Sinner are able to expose quite a bit more. I mean, Sinner with just his pace... Off of, off of that for off of the ground strokes in the middle of the court is just ridiculous because how far he's able to push Alcaraz wide and deep and then how how much Alcaraz has to do to just get back get back into the middle even with his speed it's just it's just not enough because like you said he's not absorbing that incoming ball very well so and he's not he's not forced to do this quite often against it's not yeah. like even when he's playing Medvedev in the U.S. Open semi it's not like he was forced to defend out of his mind. It was more just the baseline consistency of Medvedev combined with the serving edge that he had. And those two things in combination are what worked for Medvedev. But for Sinner, it's really it's really tough for him because even on his serve, even on Alcaraz's serve, I mean, he won five out of 18 second serve points, which is his lowest number. This is credit to Gil Gross on Twitter, but it, this is his lowest number since 2021 Wimbledon. Lowest conversion rate on second serve points won. Um, so, and I think that's because there's no safe place to go when you're serving to center and you give him second serves because he just has those crushing second serve returns off of both wings. And he's, I think it helps that he's a little taller. He's listed at six foot two, but he certainly feels a lot taller than that just because he's got these long arms, like you were pointing out earlier, his physique. And he just has this like ranginess on the returns. And I feel like he reads them very well. And he has a good read on Alcaraz's first serve too. And it didn't even help Alcaraz much, even though he made, you know, 71% of those first serve points. So it just feels like, kind of serve and return he gets he gets dominated a little bit and it's uh I can't really say that for even the Djokovic matchup to be honest he usually holds his own and on, on his serve and in most of the Djokovic matches that we've seen it's not like he's getting broken this many times and uh and usually you don't even see those breakpoint yips but like this goes all the way back to like even Umag last year maybe a little bit in the Wimbledon match they played but more so in the Umag one even in the US Open quarterfinal you know it's, it feels like Alcaraz was going through a period where he was just, you know, not converting a lot of break points. I would say between like Madrid and US Open last year and this year, it feels like since Wimbledon, actually maybe the Djokovic match might be the best he's played in terms of, you know, against a really top level player because, because I think since then he's actually been struggling to find the range a little bit on his forehand. Maybe the explosiveness is just a little bit... You know, I'm just speculating here because I don't know, like, to the extent of how much he's actually feeling the fatigue of a, of a long season. He does have his quads taped and everything, but, you know, he had those taped even in the middle of the year. So I'm, I'm not using that as something to take credit away from Sinner, but it's just like end of the season fatigue and just, you know, a lot of matches. And that's like twice in a row where 
I, I still thought, you know, after a really long physical set, usually it's so hard to put Alcaraz away. Uh, and so it is a little bit surprising maybe to see him do seven six six one, you know, two times in a in a row because even in the Medvedev match, it kind of, you know, once he lost that second set, it was going to be tough to come back from two sets to love down, even with the chances in the fourth. So, yeah, I I wonder, but I don't think that's some kind of a pattern or anything, or it's like, oh, all of a sudden Alcaraz doesn't put up, Alcaraz doesn't fight or resist, which is which would be a ridiculous take if you've seen everything he's done yeah. up until this point in his career. But it's just it's just rare to see that happen like twice in a row. Uh, by the way, I, I just realized that there was also an interesting announcement regarding Alcaraz's schedule for 2024. I guess we can also mention yeah, that. No warm-ups uh, before Australia. Is, exactly, no warm-ups before Australia and also at clay again in February, which is kind of yeah. interesting. I don't know if it really is um, connected to the Olympics at all. I know some players have said that they want to play more on clay in order to be at the Olympics. Like I, I think Arthur Fils, for example, wants to go to um south america in february which is kind of weird given how strong he was in the european indoor season of this year uh honestly like with australia i just thought that like alcaraz you know it, it's just basically it's just a thing no not with australia i mean with south america the golden swing i basically thought that for alcaraz it's only an option because he didn't play australia because he sort of had to play more matches right before the sunshine double so I am a bit surprised by that, but yeah, the no warm-up thing, I guess, you know, it has worked in the past for him um, in 2021, yeah. right? He he did look really good in Australia. He beat Berrettini. I mean, he lost to Berrettini in five, of course, in, in the third round. But um, yeah, he has made it work in the past. So I think he will be fine unless he draws someone, you know, in the first round, like uh, Max Cressy or I don't know if Cressy even will be in the main draw of the Australian Open, but you know, someone who doesn't give you any rhythm whatsoever. Yeah, maybe if, like, I don't know, Rusevori is unseated or something. Max Purcell. Like, I don't know. Right, players like that. Uh, but, yeah, it is interesting you bring that up because he is supposed to finish his season in the end of November. I think he's playing one exhibition in Mexico after the World Tour Finals. But basically, like, after that, he'll have, like, six or seven weeks of, of preseason, which is, uh, you know, which... Can be important. I'm interested to see what what he works on and improves, because obviously the improvements from 2021 to 2022 were huge, yeah. and even 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 this time, last year when he was hurt, he got a few extra days to, you know, really hone his game more, and he came out pretty strong in Buenos Aires and Rio. I think that formula is just worked for him playing the clay before, and then because he does so well at Indian Wells, it's probably his most successful, you know. Master, it's his most successful Masters at this point, I would say. Like with um, you know Indian Wells and Miami, really, like that's where he's played his best the last couple of seasons. Madrid, Madrid. We actually haven't seen him. Madrid, yes, Madrid actually, as well. yeah, Madrid, Madrid is probably yeah. the strongest. But yeah, Indian Wells, of course, it's yes. it's a court that really suits him for sure. Like basically, that period from like February to May is when he's his most productive. When yeah. he does the you know sunshine swing and the Barcelona Madrid back to back, he's done that twice now. And it's a period um, with no slumps, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But no. we haven't seen the quintessential, like best version of Alcaraz yet at a, yet at the Australian Open. So, no, I mean, he no, hasn't no. played it since he was eighteen. So I think this would be, uh, this would be something very different. Like, even same with the with the end of the season. Like, in some ways, it's the first time he's really going through this whole stretch of like Beijing all the way to Turin, assuming he can he can stay healthy. Yeah, I mean, he still hasn't played the ATP Finals. 
That's, yeah. That, that's one thing that um, sometimes really just catches you off guard. But yeah, I mean, he hasn't played it. In 2021, he was still at the next gen finals. And in 2022, he was injured. So so it's, it's pretty yeah. weird to think about this, that Carlos Alcaraz hasn't actually um, competed there in Turin yet or in London for the matter. What does this really mean for the number one ranking? Is this helpful for Djokovic or is this... You know, it's it's still mathematically, I guess. If he has a good week in Shanghai, then... You know, I mean, yeah. Alcaraz has a very good chance to finish number one still. You know, Beijing, how many is it? Like 180 points or something like that? Yeah. He's almost um, 600 points behind. So so basically a final in Beijing and they are entering Paris fair and square. And, and from what I remember, and we're going to talk about it uh, in a while... Um, well, in a, in a moment, I guess uh, the Shanghai draw is actually pretty good for him in terms of like what sort of yeah. opponents he can face, you know, in the quarters, semis. So a final, even though I don't think he's the favorite to win the final once he gets there, well, against most against a few opponents at least, um, getting to the final is a very very real possibility. So so that would give that would basically mean that Djokovic and Alcaraz are entering the ATP finals in Paris as um yeah just square even contenders i don't think it would be quite even like djokovic would be the favorite still but maybe if alcaraz claims the title in shanghai that changes yeah for sure uh, his draw looks looks very good in terms of potential and i think alcaraz is also signed up for vienna right but um we'll see if he plays that but i think he's or also you mean basel right oh basel yeah he he changed yeah. to basel this uh, right yeah, because he yeah. played Vienna in 2021. Last year he played... Yes, he did. He made semis in 2021, lost to Zvera. And, and, then and last year he played semis. what? Basel? Or he played Basel, Basel yeah, lost yeah, to Felix yeah. in the semis. Yeah, yeah, Basel, yeah. But I think, yeah, that's... I, I mean, what his potential quarterfinal is Fritz. Fritz is in a little bit of a difficult section. Like, it's it's not... Yeah, it's it's very manageable. Like, it's... Uh, and then I think his potential semi is... Who's his potential semi? Actually, I don't even have the draw in front of me. Um, Tsitsipas or yes, Rublev, the other two seats. So, like matchups that have been good. He hasn't for played Rublev past. yet. That would be yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't think he has, but like I would assume that's a good matchup for him. And Tsitsipas, of course, um, has been very success. He has been very successful against. Maybe it's gonna be someone like Tommy Paul, but you know, for now we cannot really automatically. Assume I think it might Tommy be somebody semis, yeah. somebody completely different. It could be like a it could be. Umber or something. Yeah, Umber against Tsitsipas right now, I would probably favor the Frenchman. Um, there's someone like like the, there's this section where there's Struff, Arnaldi, Wolf, Nori, which are basically well, even Popperin, they're basically like even contenders for me. Davidovich Fokina as well. I mean, he's he's playing pretty well in the last few weeks, although he struggled physically against um, you know who um, Zverev, and maybe Aslan Karatsev, for example. Like the, the, there's a lot of uh, upset potential in this um top yeah. half of the draw for Alcaraz, and I think there's not that much upset potential though in his very <clears throat> section quarter or whatever right dimitrov kachanov evans these seeds are pretty manageable yeah yeah so. and especially like how his game matches up against evans dimitrov kachanov i guess too i remember the match in madrid yeah ron garros he also crashed him um yeah. not this year but last year right yeah it could be tiafo jari or fritz or lehechka 
or maybe water nuclear shank who knows yeah but... there's, there's this really uh we, we cannot really make any predictions like for the quarters because everyone can make it but that's because the seeds aren't that strong you know on the other half of the draw you have zverev Sinner, medvedev like these are guys we would actually be expecting in the quarters in the fourth right. round and and here it doesn't happen yeah and obviously, I know this is not a Yannick Sinner podcast, but mm-hmm. in terms of in terms of like him beating Alcaraz and then going and backing it up and hmm. beating Medvedev for the first time in the final, uh, is that is that something that we're going to look back on at Beijing and be like, okay, this is this is the moment where it all kind of came together for Yannick, and this is maybe a potential career turning point where you know next year he's now going to be a contender at all the slams and top four in the world. I mean, he did make some considerable progress this week, more so than even making the winning the title in Canada or getting to the Wimbledon semifinals. I think this week showed more. Yes, it could be bigger than Toronto. It could be bigger than Wimbledon semis. I think it is definitely bigger than Wimbledon semis. You know, honestly, with the way he was, um, like his head-to-head against Medvedev was, and also against Djokovic, I think literally like on the list of, let's say, the next five things that Yannick Sinner should do in order to advance his career f- uh, forward, there was a point of beating Medvedev and beating Djokovic. He still hasn't done Djokovic, obviously. But, you know, it might sound weird that it's so important to just beat a rival. But, you know, Medvedev, he's already lost two finals against this year, ATP 500 and ATP 1000. So actually Medvedev has been making like serious dents in Sinner's trophy cabinet, let's say. I mean, Sinner only has like what three finals or four finals he lost on the ATP tour, and two of them came against Medvedev this year. So, um, yeah, I think this is absolutely huge, as you said, also back to back. And honestly, just watching that match against Medvedev, I don't know, maybe it's still going to be different in a best of five scenario, but just watching it, it felt like Medvedev had to serve at an insane level in order to even be close to Sinner. Uh, once he stopped serving at like 90% plus first serves in, which still I still don't understand how it happens really, that he ends the match with, I think, 80, 87%. And obviously in the tie breaks, it wasn't actually that high, especially the first one. But um, yeah, once he stops doing that, uh, again, Sinner's return was so strong. And um, yeah, it definitely felt like this time it was actually Medvedev who had to come up with something special to uh, to beat Sinner. He didn't. And also the way, again, Sinner made uh, net play and like seven volleying things, he is pretty awkward at. Like, I don't think he was yeah. comfortable doing that at all in the final. There were ma- there were many putaways that he maybe not missed. I remember maybe like two or three putaways that he missed. There were two smashes that he, very easy smashes that he missed. One that easily could have won him the first set, um, you know, in a more straightforward manner at 4-3 breakpoint up. Uh, but um, generally speaking, like he still made net play an asset. He was not getting, he he was just serving well enough where Medvedev wouldn't give him tough first volleys. And that was something that definitely shifted, um, you know, the power balance of this rivalry. And if he can do that again, I don't know, maybe we're going to see every player serving volleying against Medvedev right now, you know, and maybe Medvedev is going to adjust to it by the time they play for the next, uh, like next time. But uh, certainly it, it did not feel like a matchup where one player has lost six times to another. It felt very evenly matched and mostly because of how well Medvedev was serving, which before uh, before it happened, before they, they started playing, definitely wasn't how uh, most of us um, you know, foresaw it. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, like you said, overall, pretty 
pretty much positive. Pretty much everything that you wanted checked off the list, he's kind of done in terms of now being in the top four, now yeah. know, having those big wins. It'll be interesting next week, though, how he's able to back it up because I think Zverev is his fourth round and another guy. Yeah, that Zverev or yeah, Shelton, yeah. Zverev, Shelton, or there's someone else dangerous as well there. Uh, also, Fulian as well, like one of oh, these yeah, yeah, yeah. guys. And that's actually a pretty tough fourth round. And quarters, of course, we can get another senior Medvedev. So he played Safiulin in the Wimbledon quarters. Yes, that ended up being a four setter. But yeah, that's... yeah, he's got a tough draw in in, in Shanghai. In some ways, it, like I, I almost think every only from the fourth round, right? Because like yeah, the first two, the first two rounds are so easy that even though he's gonna be playing back to back, I'm sort of assuming that he gets the forefront anyway. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah, I think uh, this is a good time to kind of transition to the WTA in Beijing. Yep. That's currently going on here. But of course, before that, Fiontech played Tokyo, uh, the Tory Pan Pacific Open and 500. And that was won by Veronica Kudermatova. And Veronica Kudermatova along the way beat Fiontech in the in the quarters and then went on to actually back it up against Pavlia Jenkova and then Pagula in the final as well which uh, in some ways was even more impressive that she was able to back it up, especially against, well, against both, but also Pagula in the final. That was uh, really one of her one of her best. Uh, that was definitely the best, biggest week of her career in terms of a t- big title that she won. That's, I mean, she won Charleston in 2021, but this field was much stronger, of course. And she actually has a very strong record against top 10 players, 16 and 17 in her career, 6 and 3 this year. And... She also, of course, beat Sabalenka in Berlin, and now she gets the wins over Pibula and Uga here. So, uh, I mean, on on paper, it, it makes the loss seem, you know, not as not as bad, given that Nina lost to the defending champion. And actually, that's happened quite a bit this year. She's most of her eleven losses have come to the eventual winner at the end, or in and there's only maybe one or two that I remember that didn't like Swedenlina at Wimbledon. But most of the time, or I guess Pibula at United Cup, technically, if we count that, you know, I don't know. But like maybe halfway, but like it's you know the the match itself though it wasn't a great week for Iga. Like to be frank, it was uh, it was not. She just never really found her range in Tokyo, uh, right from the first round, of course, right against Montama. My Montama, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then of course the match against yeah Kurumatova. I think fifty unforced errors and uh, just not great uh, level in terms of being able to absorb the pace that Kurumatova was giving her and uh, just, you know, trying to beat fire with fire and it didn't, yeah. didn't always work. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think, I think a lot of people were very worried after that loss, but it seems like this week uh, it's been difficult for me to like keep up with the, with the, with the matches in, in the WTA in Beijing with the time zone, but it feels, but it, it seems like she's already kind of experimenting a little bit, which is, which is good because obviously I think in some ways that the number one ranking is uh, is no longer hers and she's she can kind of work on improving her game because I think she mentioned after Tokyo that she's going to try and exper- use these few weeks to experiment a little bit. We saw a lot more net play from her, I think. And yes. I think I remember seeing a stat in the first round that she played in Beijing that she came to the net 28 times, which is like, you know, that's that's quite a lot for Iga. So, so against Soriba Stormo, yeah. right? 
Yes, against so that that's right. also a matchup thing, right? A matchup thing where you know you're going to be you have to, to yeah, yeah you have to finish yeah, off yeah. points somehow against the Ribastormo and but but yeah this is actually um I mean I can combine Tokyo and Beijing basically in one uh, utterance here because basically in um in Tokyo for me like she played one of her most brainless events I would say. Yeah. And, um, and in Beijing, she's actually playing smart tennis. And that's basically all the difference. You know, of course, she <laughs> hasn't played anyone of Kudermetova's class yet. And yeah. um, and that may be also maybe uh, anyone of Kudermetova's play style because Gracheva is, you know, doesn't really come close. But at the same time, yeah, just both against Hontama and Kudermetova and such different opponents as well in terms of like what the dynamics of play were. She was really struggling to find her baseline rhythm and she was also just ball bashing and that's sometimes can be a compliment. In this case, it's not. It was um, probably some of the weakest tennis that we've seen from her this year. And especially the, in the Kudermetova match, it was quite disappointing, honestly, because mm. uh, we were just chatting about, you know, her losing to Ostapenko, and she basically did the same again. Um, Kudermetova was serving really well in the third set, sure. There was a stretch of like, I don't know, 15 unreturned serve. I mean, out of 15 points, she uh, had an unreturned serve like 12 times or something. But that's also because of how Iga approached it, you know. Uh, she, um, th- th- it was like, I don't know, two games, two holds away. Kudermetova is two holds away. And she doesn't really attempt to change anything, just maybe make her play a little bit more, you know, try to get the return in compared to all the 10 previous ones that you missed. And she can be like this on second serve return. You know, we've seen it all year, but usually she's just playing well to still pull it off. You know, when she's doing that when, and she's up 6-1 free love, I don't really care, right? It, it doesn't really matter if she's going to be trying to just finish off all the points with just one shot. Against Kudermetova, actually, she had to um, you know, do something and, and just never really made any sort of adjustment. Again, tried to out-hit a more... Well, I don't know if more powerful, but an opponent who had the serve advantage and an opponent who was hitting her off the court eventually. Um, I don't think she really used her defensive capabilities at all. Also, just not trying to make uh, Kudermetova play one more ball. And this is an ability that she has. Um, definitely, like, the, the, the first match that I'm sort of thinking about is, for example, against Garcia last year at the WTA Finals. When she does it so excellently, you know, Garcia earlier that year, of course, beat her in Warsaw. And then she comes to the WTA finals and she just makes Garcia play. Um, you know, so many shots that eventually the French woman makes an error. And I think Kudermetova was also sort of there for the taking, although it was an impressive effort uh, for sure from the Russian to overcome the previous encounters that she had with Sviontek, right? In the previous three matches, she only claimed how many? Four games? Yeah, four and, games in the last three yeah. matches. To do to so to to sort of leave that behind her, I think it was very impressive, but also indeed, uh, it was just a bit of a brainless performance from Shvantek, really the whole Tokyo thing. So that that's why people were worried, as you said. That's why people were sort of questioning, like how does how did the number one ranking impact her? And it it's honestly a pleasure to start to watch her in Beijing this week because she's actually constructing points. She's actually playing smart tennis when she needs to. She knows what she needs to do against a certain opponent. I don't know if the serving has improved because in Tokyo it was really poor. In Beijing, definitely today against Ninette, it was excellent. She had some, like the second set against Soribes Tormo, there was just one hold, for example, nine games. But I think that's also a bit of a matchup thing. And yeah, it's just a, a pleasure to watch her in Beijing now because Tokyo was so poor. 
that um, yeah, just, just when she came out onto the court in Beijing for the first time, you could already see that the rhythm is much better. And and yeah, she's just playing smart when she wants to, and and the uh, the point construction has improved so much. And as you said, she is experimenting a tad more. I like that that idea for sure. She doesn't have all that much to play for, right? Until the end of the year. Like, of yeah. course, there's always a title you can pick up. WTA finals. I know she obviously would want to win this one. And she, she wants to win every match, obviously. But definitely it that does feel like, you know, at the stage of her career, the slams are the main focus. So right now it's a bit of a different time. And yeah, if, if there is a moment to experiment, I do think that it's, Right now, uh, definitely the focus should not be like trying to maybe chase the number one ranking or something. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, it, it's good that the focus is on in introducing some new ideas, which as we many times had the chance to talk about on this show, is clearly something that she might need very, very soon. Yeah, for sure. This is just a stage where it feels like the rest of the, the top players have narrowed the gap and now it's up to Iga to make the adjustments. And so it's it's good that we're seeing that in, in Beijing, obviously in a higher level 1000 event. And I mean, it is still worth mentioning that that was her first tournament in three weeks since the US Open. So maybe some of that rustiness, she obviously needed a bit of a break after the US Open. And I also think the court speed, it was it's really fast in Tokyo. Yeah, And I think uh, that doesn't suit her very well on a hard court, even though when she won the US Open, I mean, she could have lost that fourth round match to Niemeyer. And the difference between 2022 and 2023 is... 2022, she won that fourth round there. She didn't, but yeah. you know, essentially, that's that's what happened. Like because you know, she she was very close to losing that match. I remember in at the U.S. Open in 2022, and we kind of be having the same discussions then. Uh, although then, you know, she was still by far the more dominant player. The thing is, uh, here it actually cost her a little bit more. But I think uh, in in Beijing, it's more medium paced, right? Is it? Yeah, it, it's not as fast for sure. It's yep, I mean, Pagula complains today about this being like a very slow court, right? So um... it's weird because I've heard different reports. Like I think Medvedev, I mean, Medvedev always has something different to say about the court speed. But he was <laughs> saying true. like it's, <laughs> he was saying like the court itself is very fast, but the balls are very slow. So yeah, it's... I I think that's the consensus in general. Yeah, but but yeah. generally speaking, yeah, medium fast or something, or maybe just medium. Uh, is is probably the right description and and yeah that suits Shiontek a lot more than Tokyo for sure. We we've chatted about it a few times as well, right? That um sort of the slams right now you have three that are pretty quick, whereas the WTA thousands this is where it's a bit easier for Shiontek on hard courts. And actually, it is she hasn't won a one thousand in a while. Like the last one was wrong. Yeah, this year this year she so. hasn't won one. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But, but I mean, like we were saying, it, it's not like it should be a main priority at this point. No, I mean, the, the French saves her season, right? If if she lost, yeah. I don't know, in the fourth from the quarters at the French, we would be talking about a bit of a, I don't want to say failed campaign, but certainly a subpar one. But the French saves her season. And it's actually similar for Alcaraz. Like Wimbledon saves his season. And this this might sound harsh because, you know, I'm talking saves his season and they are both at number two in the respective ATP WTA race, right? But basically, I think at this stage, we sort of have to be looking at it like that. Like these players just want to win a slam every year, if possible, more. And if they don't, that's a bit of a fail already. I think that's fair because of the seasons that they had in 2022. Like, yeah, you got to win a slam because if you don't, then it's, yeah. I mean, it will be considered a disappointment based on the 
standard that they achieved. Yeah. But like, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting that also they're both going into a 1000 a little bit more fresh. I mean, because obviously Akras will have some days off now. And, uh, you know, it's not like... You no, should be playing had, on Saturday, right? Saturday, yeah, yeah. Imagine if he had just dug so deep and, you know, somehow found his way out of a double break situation or one break. Because I still felt like Akras is so hard to put away. Sinner needed an extra break. Uh, just as a cushion and then you know after that it, it almost seemed like I mean obviously he never thinks like this but it almost seemed like is it really worth trying to come back and do this because you know Shanghai where he has a very good draw and greater chance to push for the number one ranking and you know it's just a few days away you might want to just conserve your energy and save yourself for that especially when you know you have to play Shanghai Basel uh, I guess he has a week off after Shanghai but then Basel and then Paris like kind of back to back and then and then Turin, and you don't, you know, don't want to risk like an injury or something, something like this, or just making that effort of coming back. But uh, well, I don't think that's how they think. You know, when you're in yeah. a match like this against one of your biggest rivals, uh, double breakdown right. or not, I mean, you're not gonna think, okay, I have Shanghai next week, I I shouldn't really fight for it. I mean, he he if if yeah. he could, he would literally like fight to the death there when in the yeah. Beijing semi, but. Didn't, didn't really but I guess what I mean is that this could end up being a blessing. I I, I, I see what you mean. He lost, yeah. in terms he of does get a lot of get a lot of get a lot of rest for Shanghai. Should be should be well rested. Yeah. And I mean, he almost Shontek never loses it. Shontek had it for Beijing too. Yeah. Shontek had it for Beijing too. Right. Yeah, and I mean, even in that Tokyo match, I mean, she won the second set six two. It was one break difference in the third on a yeah. fast court. Where I mean that game that she lost to her was absolutely atrocious in the third set. I think she double faulted three times. But anyway, I mean that just yeah, uh, it's uh, it's definitely I mean and in the in the quarters you said I mean she's playing either Kalina or Garcia, so that's that's quarters, uh, and then maybe a potential semifinal with Coco Goff, which again would be would be a big match. Yeah, there's lots of excitement still left for Sviontek in this event for sure. I as you said, Coco Goff. The fact that they would play for the first time since she broke that losing streak against Iga. And then you also have on the on the other half of the draw, you have Rybakina, who she still hasn't beaten this year, right? Uh, maybe it's going to be Pegula, who also beat her last time they played. So all well, the big yeah. hitters are in the top. Oh half. no, Pegula has lost to Pegula lost to Ostapenko today. I mean, I just I just said that she was complaining about the court. But there's Rybakina and there's um someone else that was oh Sabalenka. Yeah. Rybakina, Sabalenka, Ostapenko, Ostapenko. Samsonova, all these big hitters. Yeah. Samsonova, the last time they played, she lost one game, right? But Ostapenko, Rybakina, Sabalenka, they have all beaten Iga recently. So Yeah. I mean, some of these quarterfinal matches look very good. Indeed. Like Ostapenko Samsonova. I mean, even if we get Sakri or Sakri versus Goff. I mean, that would be that would be something, I guess. Uh, I mean, Goff and Kurumetova already is uh, is a bad word, match worth watching. So I think the Beijing draw looks really uh, exciting, at least promising in terms of a good finish. And regardless of whoever wins, it it feels like it will be one of the top players. Uh, yeah. It's the last big event before the WTA finals, right? And and it is really yeah. huge in terms of like who's actually there. And it also looks like the WTA finals will be a fantastic field. I mean, we're yeah. very likely to get seven uh, Grand Slam finalists from this season, plus Pegula, who's like the consistent queen. Yeah. Um, but I guess, yeah, I mean, and, and I don't know who is, but someone really good is not going to get that eighth spot, <laughs> it feels like. 
actually kind of I on mean, both tours. Um, probably because... Sakari, right? I mean, that's that's where we are, yeah. I guess. But but actually, it might end up being Mohova because Mohova is not playing. Yes, yes, yes. It could be Mohova just just withdrawing. Yeah, Sakari Sakari has killed her chances to actually get the eighth spot, unless she of course wins Beijing. Uh, but she basically killed her chances with the slums, right? <laughs> like not doing anything at the slums is a is a is a big hit. I think like Ostapenko is like still like yeah could maybe make could maybe get there actually. But... She is in contention if she wins Beijing, I think. Yeah, kind of like Dimitrov on the men's side. She's having her best year since twenty seventeen. <laughs> but uh, I mean. Yeah, and then it's kind of the same thing on the on, on the men's side where I feel like someone like Rude or Fritz is just not going to get there because I do think like, I mean, it's very clear, at least on the men's side, like the top five right now, because I would put Zverev fifth right now, even though he's not actually there. I agree. It does kind of feel like he will qualify and he is like the fifth best player of the world right now. And then in the, yeah, in the first half of 2024, that's where he probably returns to like top five, top six, yeah. But uh, it looks like it'll probably end up being Rublev. So it'll be like, you know, and then it'll be interesting. Like maybe, maybe, maybe Rona will get there, but it'll be, I mean, that'll be quite something. You have Sitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev. You have Rona, Sinner, Alcaraz, Djokovic, of course. And then it's like, who is the eighth guy? And it'll probably end up being Rublev just because week in and week out, it's like, I know like what to expect from him. Whereas like, I, you know, it's a little bit of a mystery still. Like, where exactly is Rude? Where exactly is? Yeah, and and Rublev is like almost guaranteed right now to get there. Really. Yeah. Um, I I know he's really far off the qualification cut, but like he is ahead of Tsitsipas Zverev. He's far ahead of anyone who's eighth, eighth ninth, and or tenth. So Rublev is very, very, very likely to get there. And yeah, like if we get Runa in the eighth spot, I'm talking like of seven guys who are, you know, ahead of um, Rune Fritz Rude. And then if we get Runa in the eighth spot, I think again, that would be just like on the WTA side, basically the best possible lineup that we could really get. Yeah, for sure. And it'll be it'll also be fun to see Alcaraz play on some of these really fast courts because I think Shanghai yeah. and Turin, I mean, that's as fast as it gets. I don't think there's any faster court on the ATP tour right now. Um I mean, Cincinnati used to be up there, but I, I think just going there this year, it felt like it was slower. So, Anta maybe like the, there are a few who are comparable, but but basically that are comparable, but um, yeah. I mean, on Miami the major, this year was rough. fairly quick as well. Yeah, Miami, Miami is definitely up there too. is probably just the fastest. I mean, out of anything yeah. really. Yeah. But I also wonder if it's changed since twenty nine. I mean, in twenty nineteen, it was very fast. But I wonder how it. I mean, Shanghai. Um, I, I think it is quick. still, you know, some of yeah. the qualifying that I watched and some of the tennis today um, definitely uh, seemed like it still should be um, like, yeah, the quality of tennis. I think that Shanghai usually produced was very high. And also like for my personal preferences, it was, you know, good, these were good conditions. <laughs> and I think yeah. it's it probably has remained this way. Uh, we've had some uh, I don't know, baby Zhukayev qualifying, for example, Kukushkin qualifying, right? That already kind of tells you how the courts are playing. Right. Um, but with that, I think that's about it for this episode of the Ego and Carlos Tennis Show. I think we, we covered mostly everything Asian swing related as it pertains to the field as well as Ego and Carlos. I mean, what I love about the show, Damien, is I mean, we're focused on Ego and Carlos, but we're able to talk about the rest of the field as a result of them. So it's <laughs> we kind of get it all done. So that's great. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, there are some, you know, topics that are maybe more broad, but they definitely still have impact on uh, on Świątek, on Alcaraz. Sometimes it's even Sinner that we discussed today, sort of his breakthrough, yeah. because this will actually impact Alcaraz for the next few years, for the next decade or so. So, yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. Yeah, but this was great fun as always. And uh, you kind of, you, everyone who's listening kind of knows the drill, but, you know, we'll just keep doing these episodes on a weekly, you know, sometimes every other week basis. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm assuming and, that uh, the next one will be after Shanghai. Um I think yeah. we we just chatted, you know, middle of Beijing before Shanghai. So, um, you know, Świątek, let's say, wins Beijing, then Shanghai would be at which stage? Third round or something like that. So, I, I my assumption is that we would probably have to record the next one after Shanghai. But I don't know if we change our plans, you guys are gonna find out about it as well. Yeah, of course. And yeah, so we'll we'll, we'll do do the next episode in in about ten days or so, and with that. Uh... Yeah, thanks for listening and have a good one.